Welcome to the Firearms Trainers Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Rob Beckman. Today, we'll be talking about human dynamics. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Head on over to their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Receive a special 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by friends at Pig Loop. Pig Loop brings you the best performance for your firearm by combining high-grade synthetic oil with nanoparticle technology. They also support the 2A community by sponsoring competitive shooters and firearm instructors everywhere. Order some Pig Loop today, and I'm sure you'll be telling your students about it because the unique applicator allows you to use less and to get it where you need it without the waste. Check out their other quality cleaning products and swag at piglube.net and use coupon code FTP20 for 20% off at checkout. Today, we are joined by Dr. William Lewinsky from the Force Science Institute. Dr. Lewinsky is a leading behavioral scientist who work has focused on the intensive study of human dynamics involving in high-stress, life-threatening encounters. He is a popular presenter in the law enforcement industry and has appeared before scores of groups worldwide, ranging internationally from New Scotland Yard, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and the International Association of Chiefs of Police, to the British House of Commons and House of Lords, as well as Obama's President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Welcome, Doctor. How are you, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We're really honored to have you on as one of the leading researchers. Uh, as we talked in the pre-show, I think it's really important for instructors not only to know how to help our students press the trigger and put sights on target and hit what they uh, want to shoot at, but also understand the human dynamics behind it. You know, how does that muscle between our ears work and how can we go along and make it work better so we make the best decision possible? I mean, when we're in a bad situation, I don't know if there's any good decisions, but make the make the best possible uh, decision at that time. That's certainly very important. Yeah. So, doctor, could you tell us, you know, in your own words, you know, what is this whole concept of human dynamics? Well, it, it's the issue that, uh, and and I'll I'll frame it this way: uh, most people teaching the use of a tool uh, think they're really teaching the use of a tool. Whether you're teaching somebody how to drive a car or how to use a gun. Uh, you think that that's what you're doing. And really what you're doing is you're teaching a human being to use that tool. They have to acquire a particular skill level. Uh, they have to apply certain mechanics, certain thought processes uh, to the use of that. And you're really teaching the human being behind the tool how to use that tool, particularly in adverse circumstances. You know, the, the driver instructor uh, mostly practices starting off on a parking lot uh, but they sure don't end up there. At least the driver doesn't. They could end up in, on a freeway in a major storm. Uh, and in the same way with the firearms instructors. And it's really, it's really about the use of that tool when you will need to use it. Uh, and you have to have, A, the particular skill behind it. And that includes the motor components of the skill, the kinesthetic, the motor components, the press issue, getting the weapon out, the alignment with the sights, the eye focus issues and the eye brain issues. Uh, plus, you have to have the decision-making capability. You have to have the emotional response behind that. You have to have the level of practice that's necessary to make all of that come together. And so when we talk about human dynamics, it's all about those physical and psychological and emotional components 
that really helps somebody use that tool most effectively. So it's not just a study of those, it's a study of the, those in high stress situations that really characterizes our work. That's, that's really interesting because I was thinking, um, learning how to drive a car, I can remember how complicated that was. Um, you know, to, you know, brake, gas, turn signal, you know, look left and right, rear view mirror, you know, all those different kind of things. And at the same time, I can, I can appreciate how it was, you know, when I first started learning to shoot or let's put it this way. When I first started uh, trying to shoot better, I mean, yeah, when you first pick it up, if the, if you don't have anybody telling you, you just go bang, 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 and bullets go down, down range. And that's, you know, you think it's fun, but when you're trying to actually execute that and do it under a lot of uh, varying conditions, it becomes a lot, lot more tougher. And, and you're, you're hundred percent correct um, about training the human on how to use that tool properly. Well, if you think about and using driving again, as an analogy, uh, you can drive really well. In fact, I bet you, you can drive all the way to work and back home again and not give a single thought to the use of your tool, how, how to drive that, that vehicle. It's all about the decisions about the use of that vehicle. And it's all about getting from point A to point B and everything else is automatic. And boy, that is really how we need to get to if we're going to be able to use that tool effectively regarding a car or a gun. Uh, it's, it's about being able to use that tool automatically to have the motor programs down at the speed they need to be. Comparison would be pressing a gas pedal at a particular speed to maintain the speed at a constant rate with your vehicle. Uh, that's all got to be automatic. Your trigger press has to be automatic. Uh, your manipulation of that trigger at the right speed has to be automatic. You know, we've seen many instances, for instance, with law enforcement, where officers try pushing that trigger faster than they've ever operated before, and they've never let that trigger reset properly. And then they get a malfunction, and they tend to treat it as a malfunction versus a trigger press issue. Uh, so it's, it's really about using that tool automatically in the environment in which you'll need to use it. And that requires a fairly high level of training, which is, uh, I think we need to encourage people to work harder <laughs> at this. Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely. And one of the great assets we have in modern times is we have, you know, dash cams, video cams, we've got closed circuit TVs. We can really go along and see what truly happened versus what somebody thinks happened. You know, you were talking about a, a gun malfunction because somebody didn't allow the trigger to reset. Well, we can actually see them go through the process and identify, you know, where things broke down at and then hopefully add that to training to allow them to, you know, realize, you know, hey, I'm just not letting the trigger out far enough to reset for it. I'm creating my own issue with this. Right, right. The people who focus on motor learning, uh, whether it's Olympic athletes trying to refine a skill uh, or uh, somebody else, uh, pro ball players, et cetera, use video a lot for feedback as well as for assessment tools. And it could be one of the most important tools that, that a, a learner has in acquiring a skill. Because so much of what we do, we, we feel, but we can also, if we can see it, uh, it becomes easier for us to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and once you get to a certain skill level, it it's hard with your own eyes to be able to see it. And video, you you can slow it down, you can speed it up, and you can really you know analyze uh, you know the minute muscle movements and such to you know how how you want to do something. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was on the range once with uh, Ron Avery, uh, world-class IPSC shooter, and he was working with me uh, on a particular uh, technique, which was he had me on a two-by-four at an angle. I was working on my toes and learning to absorb the recoil from my toes. Uh, and if I had a video on that, I would I would be able to see myself in a forward-leaning posture. But when I see people in an isosceles stance or something, um, and often it, the body's a little out of position for really managing recoil effectively, but they would never know it because it feels good to them at, at, at that point versus what they actually need to do um, and using a video camera to help them understand the correct body position that they might ideally take. Neat. Very, very neat. I'm going to have to look up Ron Avery and see see what he's got for the, on a two-by-four drill and see if he's got anything he can share. He's uh, got a lot of YouTube videos. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, he died of cancer about a year and something ago. Uh, but um, he's got a lot of YouTube videos that are really pretty cool. Uh, trying to do a science-based sort of instructional process. Good, good. Can you describe to our listeners um, what happens when we're put under extreme stress with our performance? I mean, we're talking about you know the human dynamics and studying the stress and such. You know, what happens? Do we really perform at our uh, peak? you know, during a high-stress event, or do we fall to our lowest level of training? Well, th- this is interesting because we really need to look at what is stress. And, and uh, for, for people who are new to skill, stress causes a decrease in functioning in the skill. For people who are a little better at that skill, stress can actually enhance the performance of that skill. For people who are really good at that skill, Implementing the skill manages the stress. And I, I want to give you some of the research that we are just working on. Uh, one of the research labs at a university that we're working on is actually measuring oxygen blood flow in the frontal part of the brain just above the eyes and its effect under high stress uh, on the oxygen levels of the front of the brain. Because under stress, our brain shifts to bottom heavy or low road, which is where our primal uh, uh, information processes are. Our emotional center and our basic life support systems all become activated under stress at a much higher level. And our frontal lobes actually begin to shut down. And, And so we lose the capacity to be creative, to think creatively, to analyze, um, and actually effectively control our response. So we're responding emotionally and effectively with great decision-making versus simply recoiling and wishing we weren't there. We didn't have to be in that situation. Uh, and so, you know, how do we build that, uh, that capacity to literally grab a hold of a problem and address it? Uh, and, and we found that uh, under high-stress situations, the person who has the skill actually is able to utilize that stress and facilitate a higher level of performance. And the question is, when do you get to that curve and how much training is necessary to get to that curve? And most people won't get there. But what they can do is they can train beyond the basic level to the point where anxiety and stress 
actually helps them perform better, not optimally, but better than what they are doing without that stress. Uh, for instance, uh, the capacity to focus intently on a target and, and to really focus on that task for some people becomes enhanced with stress. The importance of doing that skill becomes so, uh, so critical to them at that point in time that they put all of their potential resources to that task. And they actually do better because they now become intently committed to doing really well at it. Whereas other people under stress, particularly those with less skill, will almost recoil, um, crawl inside their head. Never thought they'd have to be in this situation. Now they're here. And, um, and it's tough being there. Uh, you know, I, I have interviewed over 3,000 police officers that have made deadly force decisions. And on one end are the really high-level operators uh, who can't tell you how many rounds they fired or how many steps they've taken or where they were, what the body position is, because they're so focused on what the threat is doing to them and their engagement to stop that threat. And on the other end are officers who never really took the question seriously in the academy, can you use deadly force? They go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I look at, sure, yeah, I'm under threat. Yeah, I can use deadly force. But they never really thought about it. And now that they're here, face-to-face -face with someone with the intent and ability to kill them, who's acting on it, the reality li literally hits them in the head like a two-by-four. And they recoil. Because that's what we need to deal with. We, we practice with the gun for a variety of reasons, sport, recreation, uh, enjoyment, building a skill, diversion, variety of things. But for those who carry it seriously because they are afraid they might have to need it sometime, they really should give some thought to what it's like to be there and what level of skill they need to build to be able to make great decisions under that situation because it is truly challenging and a very unique type of position to be in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For a law enforcement who, like you say, you know, go through the Academy and they're taught how to defend people, how to defend themselves. Um, that's, you know, that's one, you know, type of, uh, you know, person who would be in a deadly force, you know, from a civilian standpoint, you know, that that's another, that's tougher to get, a, get across to people because most law enforcement, you know, they go through several uh, weeks, you know, months worth of uh, training where a lot of uh, civilians, they might go through an eight hour concealed carry class and that, and that would be it. And that's where we as uh, trainers, instructors need to go along and instill in them their, their desire to go along and learn more to be able to perform at a higher level because when things go wrong they're going to be you know going wrong really bad and the last thing they want to do is make the wrong decision whatever that is right and the and the issue with i think being a good instructor is not critically analyzing people and discouraging telling them they're not good enough for that stress or they need to do this or that but uh, encouraging them uh, to do better and, and to strive for higher goals and, and to and to try something on. Try mm -hmm. pressing your trigger more lightly and see what that does for you versus, uh, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it's discouragement versus encouragement. Uh, and learning is certainly enhanced with encouragement. And people want to participate more. 
uh, with, uh, well, with honey versus vinegar, so to speak. Yeah, it's one thing I've learned uh, in all my years of uh, training students as well as instructors. Uh, you really want to tell them what to do versus tell them what they you don't want them to do because when you're teaching negatively, you keep telling them what you don't want them to do and you're expecting them to go and reprogram it in their head to what you do want them to do. And you know, that, that's uh, that's a important psychological thing for instructors to realize about their students. Always talk to them about wh- how you want them to do it and spend spend a l- less time on on telling them what they're doing wrong, more on on what you want them to do. Good, correctly, because what occupies your head when you're under stress? It, it's if you're thinking about I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that, versus I need to do this and I need to be making great decisions while I'm doing that. Uh, that's where your head should be. That's where your brain should be. And that's where your eyes should be. We found a great relationship between what the eyes are doing and performance. In fact, we've actually, one of our studies, we put eye scan equipment on, on elite and uh, counterterrorism teams that actually protected royalty during the Olympics, uh, the London Olympics. And we worked with regularly trained officers. And there's no question they see the world differently. And there's also no question that they use their eye and gun in a very different way uh, than does the average person. Uh, And so it's all about really engaging the eye and the brain and focusing on what you need to do versus what you did wrong (laughs) and Mm -hmm. how you shouldn't do it again. Is there any specific... um kind of approach that instructors uh, can that you've seen that instructors can do to help uh, students overcome or or ingrain this in them better um i w- when i look at how much I, i'm coming from a very different perspective so I, I could very easily be speaking out of my bailiwick uh but w- one of the things that uh, one of the observations i have made is that we get students to pull the trigger on a gun that's got a bullet in it much earlier than we should. Uh, I think much of what a um, a student uh, can acquire, uh, they can acquire long before they pull the trigger and the gun goes bang. The draw issues, the trigger press issues, dry fire use of a cert gun or something like that, even a plastic gun. The, the uh, you know, getting it out of the holster, getting to a close, close ready position or a sole position, and then that press uh, outward and the alignment uh, and matching, matching the eye. So you're looking at a target and then the gun automatically drives forward through that line of gaze. All of that very sophisticated skill level can be taught without a single bullet going downrange. Uh, and, and when we, we look at building those skills, uh, you, can, you can do that in your home. In fact, one of the things we're working on now and at our conference um, this coming uh, July uh, in, in Orlando, we're, we're looking at offline learning. Uh, and we're looking at uh, use of sleep to facilitate a consolidation of what's called motor skills. Uh, and if you, if you practice a motor skill in little bits, not a huge chunk, like going to the range and spending two hours and firing 200 rounds on range, but drawing a gun from a holster five times at speed, uh, pressing it out with a sight alignment, um, 
at different speeds, driving different speeds forward. If you do a little bit a lot, uh, you become really skillful at something. In fact, that is, that's the key to great motor performance. Great skill performance in anything is to do a little, a lot. Uh, and and uh, it, it, it doesn't cost you a penny <laughs> to, to, to dry fire. Uh, and, but boy, the skills you can build off range. And if you can do them uh, a little bit, three, three to four times a week before you sleep, your skill will increase exponentially. Uh, one of the studies done at Harvard, um, and it's, it's out of their, uh, their sleep labs, was they had people do a, a motor skill. And, and they had people practice it in the morning and then come back at night. And they had people practice at night and come back in the morning. And those people that practiced it in the morning and came back at night did about the same as when they left with some deterioration. And those people that did it at night and came back in the morning were 20% better when they came back in the morning than when they left. And that's because when we sleep, our brain organizes the stuff that we've been working on uh, during the day, thinking about, uh, ruminating about. You know, you, you may go home and think about a problem at work, not be able to sleep well. That's because you're going over and over. Well, our brain processes motor skills that way, too. We can actually facilitate our motor skill acquisition with what's called REM sleep. And so if we, and we can get, we can get better eye motor coordination, we get better motor skills. If we practice a little bit, a lot, and particularly if we do it at the end of the day, or particularly when we're rested, because that's when we really build great skills is when we're rested. Um, you, you actually build incorrect skills if you get too fatigued. Firing too many rounds downrange can actually build a, a poor, um, a poor skill level because you, you practice bad habits. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. We start, we start cutting corners and things like that. And that's not only bad for skills, but also, you know, bad from a safety standpoint, um, right. for, because fatigue can be very, uh, dangerous. Right. Very dangerous. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but dangerous also because it interferes with it. You're wasting your time and your money. Uh, cause uh, once you're, if you're not mindful in acquiring a skill, uh, yes, you're practicing, and yes, you can have fun, uh, but it is that mindfulness. It's the awareness on the technique that really builds the motor programs and the eye-brain stuff that's important to make really good motor performance. Um, and so when you get fatigued to the point where you can no longer pay attention to your grip and and the trigger press and the alignment and, and those sorts of issues or the draw, draw stroke, whatever it is you're working on. When you get so many repetitions that you're not paying any attention to how you're doing it, well, <clears throat> you're no longer learning um, and you're not necessarily practicing productively. You could be having a great deal of fun. <laughs> there's, there's no question about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, but, um, but what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and I think uh, uh, one of the best ways of taking advantage, particularly for people who don't have a lot of time and money, uh, is to, to really have purposefulness and mindfulness in your practice. So when you go to the range, you're working on trigger press. 
uh, and it's only like 100 rounds or 50 rounds you're working on trigger press or you're working on side alignment or, or grip or you're working on the clamshell or the C-press uh, on your grip or whatever it is mm -hmm. that you're doing, but there's a mindfulness to what you're doing and you're not just pumping bullets down range and wasting money. Yeah, you're, you're watching what you're doing. No. Yeah. Um, another uh, topic area that I think is uh, you know, very, very in my mind when it comes to instructing students and things like that, how does the decision-making process all work? I mean, we've heard about the OODA loop and different things along those lines, but, you know, how, you know, in your, in your research, you know, how does the mind, um, once it's, once we've processed the motor skills, different things like that, um, you know, how does it go along and actually, you know, decide what action should be done and what order? Okay. Rob, there's a couple of things we need to look at in, in sequence here. And one is you think about the brain as a computer. Uh, you've got a desktop and then you have storage space. And the problem with the human brain is we have such little desktop space that it's almost meaningless. Uh, and and I'm, I'm serious. Uh, we would not have uh, laws against cell phone use and driving if you could really pay attention to a cell phone conversation, think about it, listen to it, answer the questions appropriately, and drive at the same time. And we do not have enough brain space to do those two things effectively. That's why we have, we have laws against cell phone use and driving. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you're, you're listening to a cell phone conversation, it takes you twice as long to stop your vehicle as if you're paying attention to the road. And if you're really focused, you can't tell the difference between a child about to run out in front of you and a dumpster by the side of the road. That's how internally focused you are versus externally focused on, on driving issues. So we have to recognize when we look at decision making that, first of all, we don't have a lot of desktop space. If that desktop space is dedicated to the use of the tool, we have no space left for decision making. That's why your use of the tool has to be automatic. If you think you're going to have in your head the laws of the land about when you can use force, you're in trouble. In fact, most police officers uh, have problems doing what the basic laws are regarding firearms, which is target identification and target isolation. It is hard to do those two things at the same time when your life is under threat. And, and so we have the emotional component and we have this limited desktop space. And we know that under stress, those will fail you. Your, your capacity to think creatively to solve a problem will fail you. So you need to, A, have the skill as automatic as you can. You got to have as good a skill with that tool. So whatever you're doing with it, it's like walking. It, it is that automatic. Secondly, we, we know that you don't have the capacity under rapidly evolving high-stress circumstances to engage in rational decision-making. Even if I was to say 1001, we are at least twice as long as the average gunfight is. 1,001. The average gunfight involves two to three, four rounds maybe, at a cadence of a quarter second around with a light stroke, um, short poundage, a handgun like a Glock. 
uh, you'll fire three rounds in a half a second. 0 0.25, 0.50, cadence and quarter second round. What type of decision making will you make under an assault that takes about a second or less than that, and your response is about a half a second? It is not rational and logical. Uh, so uh, what we do is we kind of organize and recognize patterns in behavior. And it becomes very important for people who use force uh, and are not really skilled at it to talk about this and to explain it to others in this. I saw the gun. I saw the movement. I was in fear of my life. That's pattern recognition based on training or experience. It is not usually a rational decision. It is usually an emotional decision as people are shooting to save their life under that circumstance. And it's called recognition prime. Sometimes it's called fast and frugal, uh, but it is almost never rational and logical and lawful. You will explain it in those terms later because you have a right to use force and law is not my area, but you do have a right to use force to defend yourself. Uh, and, and so you can talk in those terms, but how quickly is that assault going to occur? And how quickly does your response have to be? And it's all really very, very quick. In fact, most of the officer-involved shooting situations that I have looked at have been over with in a second to two seconds. From the initial uh, presentation of the threat to the last round fired by the defender. So when, when we look at these things happening this quickly, uh, we get, um, th think about, Think about driving again. It's the same sort of thing. You're driving down the road and a child runs out in front of you. What type of decision-making do you make in those circumstances? You take the first. And the first choice is to slam on your brakes. And if that's not working, you might think about steering around the kid if you have enough time. Otherwise, you got one choice. Uh, and that choice is almost automatic and it's kind of kind of primal and it's trained within you. Uh, let, let's, uh, for those of us who live in northern climes, uh, you're approaching an intersection. There's vehicles traveling in, uh, across that uh, intersection. Uh, and as you put on your brakes, you realize you're on black ice and you're about to skid into the intersection. What is the rational thought that exists in your brain under that circumstances? And how do you try to prevent from having your vehicle slide into the intersection? It, it is very comparable to the type of decision process that people make in high-stress, life-threatening situations. There's not much difference. And you're responding based on your training and experience. And, and so we encourage people to think about this before it actually happens. Because if it happens, thinking about the law will be one of the last things, unless, unless an event takes time to unfold, in which case, then it's different. Mm-hmm. But we all we know that the uh, those violent encounters are very very few of them. Are we're going to have the luxury of time? It's going to be you know very quick, over and done with, and you know we're going to have to live with whatever whatever our decisions is at that point. Well, even if if there's an intruder in your home, um, and and you hear the intruder, um, you're seconds away from a confrontation. Mm -hmm. It may be minutes. The intruder may stay downstairs if you're upstairs and may never come upstairs. 
But if they're going to come upstairs and you're upstairs, you are seconds away from a confrontation uh, and a decision that you may end up very well uh, paying the rest of your life for. So it better be really good. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, if you're in the back bedroom, it may be less than, than the time you have upstairs. Mm -hmm. And how can you give yourself more time? And how can you help prepare yourself for a better decision under those circumstances? Those are the things that challenge us as trainers to help uh, our students become aware of the seriousness uh, of the what they're they're training for and how they can best practice for it. Definitely, well, that's a heck of a lot to uh, to think about. I'll tell, I'll tell you that learned. Uh, been taking notes here my, myself because of lots of really good information there, uh, Dr. Winsky. Really appreciate it. it. We've got a quick question for you that we've been asking all our guests this year. What books are you reading for uh, professional and personal development? Well, I'm, I'm going to recommend uh, two books, which uh, I'm reading just because they're part of the course content. Uh, we have, um, not only do we have our five-day course and a one-day and two-day course on, on human performance, but we've got a variety of courses on uh, de-escalation, et cetera. But we also have an advanced specialist course. It's uh, 300 hours long. Most of it's online. And a couple of the core textbooks are Schmidt and Lee's uh, Motor Learning and Performance. And they really have uh, Schmidt spent 40 years at UCLA studying how human beings acquire a, a skill with a tool. Uh, and Tim Lee, um, and by the way, he Schmidt taught with us, and Tim Lee is teaching with us now, and he spent 40 years at McMaster University in Canada studying the same thing. So Motor Learning and Performance is a great textbook. Uh, the other is Joan Vickers' book, Perception, Cognition, and Decision-Making. And she has spent most of her life looking at the eye-brain relationship uh, and motor skills, particularly in analyzing circumstances that are rapidly unfolding and how to recognize cues that help you make a great decision. Uh, one of her high points was teaching the Canadian hockey goalie for the women's gold medal team in the Salt Lake City Olympics. She taught that goalie how to look when someone's about to hit a slap shot at you that's screaming at you and how to identify where that slap shot is going based on the behavior of the opposing player. So perception, cognition, decision-making are great texts. On the other hand, uh, I have 50 years in traditional Japanese martial arts. And my recreational reading is often in the area of Zen uh, and early forms of uh, Japanese uh, training and how it connects to modern performance. And surprisingly enough, there's not a lot of difference between the two. <laughs> well, that, that's where, uh, you know, we, I started asking this, the book question after we had uh, uh, Dave Spalding on the beginning of this year. Mm. And one of the things that he actually uh, uh, talked about was how he goes back and reads gunfighting books from the uh, 30s and 40s. Not because they are, they tell you how to use a Glock, but because they talk about the gunfight and whether you're using a 1911, a, you know, 38 special or, uh, or a, you know, cap revolver, um, you know, the gunfight's still the same and you still have to go through those processes and such, you know, back then as you do now. And that's where it's been really, really neat to hear what people uh, are reading because you just, you, sometimes you don't expect it. So. Right, right. And Spalding is is correct. 
human conflict has always been there and how we face conflict and what tool we use and how we use that tool has been with us since primal times. Exactly. Yeah. We had sticks and stones back then and now we've got, <laughs> you know, uh, clocks and, uh, and, uh, other things to shoot with. So, well, somebody still may try to crush your skull with a baseball bat. <laughs> so yeah, we do get, do get some of those uh, primitive uh, weapons every once in a while. Yeah. Right, right, we do. Well, where can instructors find out more information about you and the uh, Force Science Institute? Well, we, the Force Science Institute has a website, and a lot of our research is up there. Our courses are up there. We have over 400 uh, news articles that they can do a word search uh, for, and we have uh, we've been researching human behavior, as you said, for decades, uh, and we've been interviewing people that have done the research, and that's written up in our newsline. So there are over 400 of those that uh, any instructor can do a word search for, and um, we've got we've got about five research publications that are coming to the fore that we'll be up with about the 30-some uh, journal articles, peer-reviewed scientific articles on our research. Uh, that's up on our website, too, so people can look at that. Uh, and there are even some examples of some of our videos, et cetera, uh, up on our website. But Force Science, uh, if you look for Force Science, go to Force Science, uh, you'll find uh, a really fairly well-developed uh, research uh, uh, website. And people can also sign up for our newsletters as well as do word search through our, our 400 mm. uh, in our history. Yep, and I will include links to uh, that in the show notes, as always, so that people can uh, look up that information. And you also have uh, several classes um, com- coming up too. Um, you know, depending upon where we are with with the uh, COVID, uh, the pandemic, and everything, some may be in person, some may be be virtual. All depending upon uh, what's allowed, right? Rob, life is challenging, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is, in lots of different ways. Lots of different ways. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, the uh, some of my early psychological uh, foundations was Adlerian psychology, and Alfred Adler said uh, to have uh, to live is to have problems, but to have problems is to live. Uh, and I think we need to look at that as challenging times, and and uh, we'll face it as such, and we'll get through it. Yep, and our and the be- biggest satisfaction we get out of life is solving problems. <laughs> that's you know, right you think and, about and, uh, it you know you don't go home and say wow i had a really boring day i feel good it's like wow i solved something today i never had it's well, it's, it's a human species kind of thing th- think about trying to put a bullet down range and accurately hit a target that's mm-hmm. a challenge think about going down a hill on two boards at 60 miles an hour that's skiing that's a challenge mm-hmm. <laughs> or, try, or trying to catch that hockey puck that's coming at you know 100 plus miles an hour from you know 30 feet in front of you uh, or, or, <laughs> or, or hit a baseball it, you know it, it's all it, it's all in how we view it and uh, and that's certainly very true and i i really thank you for the opportunity to uh, to share some of our stuff uh, with you and uh, uh i really appreciate your attitude on on life and, and uh what you're trying to do and glad to have helped you all with it. Well, we really appreciate it because as I told you before, we talk a lot about pressing triggers, but it's also good to uh, make sure we develop that muscle between our ears um, to make good decisions and understanding the human component to it. I think it's extremely important, extremely important. Uh, Well, that's a wrap for this episode. We have a few requests for our loyal listeners. Do you have any ideas, questions, or feedback? Please email us at FTP at concealed 
Visit our sponsors, especially the Firearms Trainers Association, FTAProtect.com. Check out their instructor insurance. Being a responsible instructor means having insurance coverage, both for you and for your students. Remember to use promo code FTP10 for 10% off checkout. Rate our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Share this episode on Facebook and encourage others to listen and subscribe. If they're not listening to our podcast and they're not getting this great content by great guests like Dr. Bill Lewinsky. Remember, we bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Human dynamics are important to understand for you and your students. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.